God, you are an awesome God. Lord, that word can lose so much power in just how it has uh, culturally been used. But God, you are the only one deserving of that title of awesome. Lord, you bring awe and wonder. Lord, we give ourselves to the study of who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us because you are awesome. Lord, thank you for this time that we have uh, to come to your word. God, where you have so graciously revealed yourself to us. Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you open our minds, open our ears, that we would, that we would hear what you have for us tonight? what you say about yourself and what you say about us and how we are to live um, in your world, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, we love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the first sentence out of our Bibles, and I have gone to this sentence many times already in this series, this knowledge of the holy, the character and attributes of God. I've gone to this sentence many times already in this series, and in series that we've done before, I come back to that first sentence in our Bibles because these 10 English words, um, they tell us so much about God. These ten words are the basis for so many of his attributes. And so if you guys remember, as we are studying attributes right now, we are studying the incommunicable attributes of God. These are attributes that only belong to God and that we as his creation submit to. And later we will get to communicable attributes. Um, but so many of the attributes that we're studying from God, we can just know even from the first 10 words in our English Bibles. Um, tonight we are going to be, so last week we did the aseity of God. This week we are looking at God's sovereignty and specifically his omnipotence. And so as we look at this first sentence of our Bible, in the beginning God created the heavens, and the earth. One of the things that we can gather about God, being creator of all things, is that God sits on the throne of the universe in unstoppable and unalterable power. So I said we're going to be looking at sovereignty and specifically uh, omnipotence. So when we look at sovereignty, the definition of sovereignty is supreme power and control. Having supreme rank, power, or authority. And so what we're looking at when it comes to God, when we're studying who God is and how he has revealed himself, God's sovereignty is the exercise of his rule over creation. And so we witness this rule through his omnipotence, his omniscience, and his omnipresence. We're going to look at those three things. So this overarching umbrella of God's sovereignty, his rule over creation, and we're going to break it down into his omnipotence, his omniscience, which you guys will hear from the one and only John Norton next week on that, and then his omnipresence. And so for tonight, with omnipotence, we're going to break it down. 
So when we get the word omnipotence, it comes from the Latin, so this omni meaning all, and then potens meaning power, so this all-powerful being, having unlimited influence or authority, almighty or infinite in power. And so when we look at God being omnipotent, God is all-powerful, or the Bible will use the word almighty. You may have heard that a lot, almighty God, saying he has all the might, he has all the power. God's omnipotence, the definition that we are going to work with tonight, God's omnipotence means that he is able to do all his holy will. And so when we uh, um, think about God's power, there's so much that can just flood into our minds. Because not only is his power on display throughout all of his creation at all times, but his power is mentioned specifically cover to cover of this precious book. Just some examples for us. In Psalm 24:8, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Or we get this rhetorical question in Genesis 18:4, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Again, similar, where God's asking this in Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? This, this is this rhetorical question where the answer is obviously no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 3.20 how he talks about God. He says, now to him, that is God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The angel Gabriel says to Mary in Luke 1.37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And again, Jesus says in Matthew 19, 26, but Jesus looked at him and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So this definition of God's all-powerfulness, God is able to do all, um, to do all his holy will. You'll notice that the definition we don't have is God's able to do anything that your mind can imagine. Why do we say that? Why would I put that caveat on there? It's because scripture does actually tell us that there are things that God cannot do. God is not able, Titus 1-2 and Hebrews 6-8 tells us it is impossible for God to lie. That is not something he can do. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us that God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny anything about his character. James 1.3 says that God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So God cannot lie, he cannot sin, and he cannot deny himself or be tempted with evil. God can also, he cannot cease to exist God cannot cease to be God. 
God cannot act in any way that's inconsistent with any of his attributes. We talked about this at the beginning of the series, how we are going to be using all of the attributes. They all intertwine with one another. All of the attributes are used to interpret the other attributes. So God is able to do all that his holy will is. He is able to do it And he is able to do far more than we could ever ask, imagine, or see in his good and holy will. And so in the story that we looked at last week in Acts 17, Paul was addressing the men of Athens. And he points out to them this altar. If you guys remember, they had all of these gods set up. And Paul noticed that one of their altars is to this unknown god. And he says, actually, what you're missing in your worship is a very knowable god. This God who is so high above it all. Remember, we talked about his estate, he, that he is so high above it all, that he is the creator of all things. And then Paul lays out for them how he is all powerful and in control, that he is in control of all things, that he has even determined the allotted periods and boundaries of dwelling for all humanity for all of time. He is this high and transcendent God, yet he's this eminent God, the one who is near, and that we can reach out to him. And so his sovereignty and his power, it's not to make us feel small and distant from him, but actually known and cared for. And so tonight, where we're going to be, you guys can open your Bibles to John 11. In John 11, we're going to look at a story of Jesus This is getting close to the end of his ministry. And so we want to take this idea, when we're looking at the sovereignty of God, when we're looking specifically at his power, God who is all-powerful, and this truth that Paul was hitting on when he's talking to to the men of Athens, where here's this high so transcendent God and yet he is not far and removed that we should feel small and distant from him but that we should feel his nearness and that we um, are known and cared for so intimately by him and so like I said in John 11 we're gonna we're gonna uh, look through a hefty amount of scripture Um, so it's good you guys got your Bibles track along Um, we're getting close to the end of Jesus's ministry he showed himself up to this point, to his followers, to the people, the cities that he's going into. He showed himself to be quite powerful in healings that he's done. And he's even recognized for the, the way he teaches with great authority. Um, and so we're going to jump right into it in John 11. It says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? Jesus loved these people, so he stayed away longer while he was ill. How does that make sense? Let's keep reading. Then after this, he said to, his, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I, let's just pause. I just love Jesus. Like, okay, guys, you're not getting it. Lazarus has died, okay? That's what's happening here. And for your sake... I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. So Jesus is aware of Lazarus' illness, and he stays away longer. And we're a little bit confused that that's how he's showing his love for him and his sisters. So he stays a little longer, and when he's ready to go, his disciples are even warning him, like, hey, people, people in, in Judea, they are not happy with you. They're ready to stone you. You're about to be killed. And, and Jesus is like, we're going, and, and all the disciples are like, okay, let's go die with him. Jesus is leading us to our death. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, that there will, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So Martha has seen the power of Jesus that he displayed all throughout his ministry and believes. She has this faith to say, I believe that if you would have been here, this bad thing would not have happened. And Jesus tells her, your brother is going to rise again. And Martha says, yeah, I know. He'll, he'll rise. I, I know in the last days there's going to be a resurrection. I believe that. And Jesus' response to her is to not focus on this future resurrection, but what Jesus is going to do now. 
He drops this powerful statement in 25. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus makes this powerful I am statement that shows that he is truly God. That he is truly, fully God. He has life within himself. That was something that we talked about last week with the aseity of God. That he has life within himself. And Jesus is claiming, I have this life. And to Martha, he explains that the resurrection, it's not just this future event that is to come, but it's the very power of God himself conquering death and giving life. And so what does he ask her after this powerful statement? Do you believe this? And then we see she makes this beautiful confession. Yes, you're the Christ. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's keep reading. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. And greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And he said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So we see in this section that we just read, um, in both Mary's reaction and, and in some of the other Jews' reactions, something that I know to be true of myself in times of hardship. If you saw Mary's reaction, she says, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. A similar thing to what Martha said. And then the Jews, as they see Jesus... Weeping, and they're saying, wait, couldn't this man, we saw him do all these incredible miracles. Couldn't he have stopped this if he would have been here? And like myself, when times of hardship come, you're crying out, Lord, if you would have just been here. God, if you would have just answered my prayer the way that I prayed. I wouldn't be in this situation. Let me start to go down this path of, God, do you even see me? God, do you even care about what is going on in my life? Do you care how this is affecting me? If you are all-powerful, then why is this happening? How could you let this happen if you are all-powerful? 
Our world has trouble with believing in an all-powerful God. Because how could an all-powerful God let such horrible things happen? God, how are you all-powerful? Do you even see what's happening in Ukraine? Do you even see what's happening to my neighbor and the cancer diagnosis and her husband passing? God, do you even see? Are you moving? Are you doing something? And our answer is back in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, this news of Lazarus being ill, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Anything that God does is for his glory. It is for his glory. Jesus waited where he was for God's glory, that God would get the glory and that the Son of God would be glorified. And then back to our verses in 5 and 6. And he loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus enough to let them see this happen, that they would get to see his glory too. He did not remove this hard situation of their brother's illness because he loved them enough to show them his glory. But this passage, this section that we just read, we can also get really confused at this point and ask, okay, Jesus, why are you crying? Like, you kind of brought this about. Why are you crying? You intentionally waited and let this happen. And this reality of Jesus' compassion that is on full display here of him being greatly troubled in that short verse, but powerful verse that we get, that Jesus wept. The reality of Jesus' compassion shows me in my own troubles. That Hebrews 4.15, just as Hebrews 4.15 tells us that we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is, able, who is not able to sympathize. God does not sit far off and just dictate things to happen so that, is powerful, that he can be seen as powerful. But rather, he is a God who sees us in our pain. He's a God who sits near to us in our pain. He grieves with those who grieve. God does not look at the sin in my life that has brought about a lot of pain or sin that has been done to me that has been very hurtful. He doesn't just look at that far off and say, oh, well, she'll be fine in eternity. Because I'm all powerful and all of this will be gone in eternity. No. No, God hates evil and sin. And he is so near to us in our brokenheartedness. He loves us enough to let our situation get a little more impossible. To show us his holy, awesome power and that we may see his glory. God does not just sit when I'm pained by close family members 
who do not know the Lord and who are making decisions that are so destructive to their lives physically, emotionally, spiritually. And I agonize over these and say, God, why aren't you moving in their life? Do you care? Do you see them? It's passages like this where I know that God grieves with me, that it hurts his heart even more than it hurts mine because he hates sin and evil. And he loves me enough to sit with me in that and to let me depend on him, to grow my dependence on him in those moments. That I would see his glory. Let's finish it out. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. So there's this incredible thing that has just happened, that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. The text emphasizes he has been dead four days. There was no, he, his heart just kind of stopped a little bit. I don't know if you want to know the things. Julia is a nurse. She could tell you some of the things. No, homeboy is dead. He is dead. He is in the grave. This is amazing. No one can just raise someone from the dead. You can't go to the cemetery and say, call them by name and say, come alive. You can't do that. No one can do that. This is amazing to bring someone back to life. And Jesus, he had performed many miracles. He had shown his power over disease and illnesses that he healed. He showed his power over creation when he calmed the storm and he walked on water. He showed his power over the spiritual realm as he cast demons out of people. And he showed his power over death by Lazarus rising from the grave. But Lazarus eventually died again. And we know that because he's not still walking around on earth. He would be very old. He died again. Jesus showed that he is ultimately all-powerful, the all-powerful God, when he conquered sin and death on the cross. We know that Jesus was falsely arrested and that he was handed over to be killed But he willingly submitted and died the death that our sin deserves. You and I deserve the death that Jesus bore on the cross. And he did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave, conquering death once and for all. And Jesus, unlike Lazarus, did not die again. 
When Jesus rose from the grave after he is with his disciples for a while and then he ascended into heaven, when we are preaching the gospel to our friends, we have to tell them. A lot of us want to just say, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, amen, that is great. But Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the grave by the powerful, all-powerful, omnipotent God. And he did not die again, but he ascended into heaven, and he is alive, and he is out there. He is seated at the right hand of God, and he is making intercession for you and I. And he is sitting with us in our brokenness, in our brokenheartedness, in our pain, and he is delighting with us in our joys and our triumphs. He did not stay dead. He rose from the grave, conquering death, sin and death, once and for all, so that he can say to us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do we believe this? Do we believe this? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in our lives. Not only do we not fear death because there's eternity to come, that all of us will most likely die one day, unless Jesus returns before that. All of us will experience a physical death of our bodies. We've talked about that. We're groaning. Our, our bodies are telling us that, that death is for all of us. But we do not have to fear death, not only just because of eternity, which is great, and it's our ultimate hope. And that is powerful that God has purchased eternity for us. But we have access to God's power in our lives right now. God wants to conquer sin that leads to destruction in our lives now. I want you guys to think. We all know I can sit here and list out a million things where I feel like it has so much power over me. God, this crippling anxiety about what this job holds. God, this crippling anxiety about what tomorrow looks like, what my future looks like, what college I'm going to. God, this anger that I cannot seem to get under control, it feels like it has so much power over me. God wants to conquer sin that leads to destruction in our lives now. And that is what is so incredible about this gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, we just did a series on and as a church, we are walking through uh, this idea of, of what it means to walk in the Spirit. And this, the idea that the Holy, Spell, oh, Holy Spirit is dwelling in believers, in the ones who say, yes, I do believe. His spirit is moving and is working mightily in us to put to death the deeds of the body and bring new life for us to walk in now. And so in God's sovereignty, in his exercise of his rule over his creation, as he is sustaining all things, 
He does so by his power and might. We can look around and we can see God's power in many ways, in nature. So many different things where we can just get even the smallest glimpse of, okay, God is a powerful God. And as we come to the Gospels and we see Jesus, there's so much power and transformation that he wants to bring in your life. He wants, as we sing about, to break chains Sin that we feel so enslaved to, he can break that. He has the power. The Spirit has the power to set you free from those things. He gives that to us freely because he loves us. And that he's doing all things for his glory and for our good.